Welcome to the Liberal Jewish Synagogue podcast. We are an inclusive, egalitarian community for all ages. Together we explore Jewish traditions, texts, and values, and apply them to the realities of the 21st century. This episode is recorded live in our synagogue in London. Our website is ljs.org. Please be in touch to learn how you can get involved. Seminar is called A Noxious Weed Anti Semitism in a Disturbed Political Environment. Um, we have a second seminar just to sort of advance publicity in January. On Tuesday, the 21st of January 2020, same time, with Rabbi Julia Neuberger, who has written a book about anti Semitism, what it is what it isn't, why it matters. That's in January. But for today, I'm really delighted to welcome two distinguished scholars and writers, Dr. Keith Kahn-Harris, who is a sociologist and writer. He's a senior lecturer at Leo Beck College and runs the European Jewish Research Archive at the Institute for Jewish Policy Research. His latest book, Strange Hate, Anti-Semitism, Racism, and the Limits of Diversity, is his sixth book. He is the only individual I know who once helped me out in writing a sermon for a young 13-year-old who was a heavy metal addict. (laughs) I had to email, can't remember if I emailed or rang you because you did your PhD on Jewish heavy metal. (laughs) Is that right? No, it was about about metal, but not specifically Jewish. Anyway, you were great on that occasion. Thank you very much. 2008. I'll never forget it. (laughs) And Dave Rich, I'm not supposed to say that you... I can say... Right, so a bit cloak and dagger this. Director of the Policy for the Community, for the Community Security Trust, that's CST, that's the people who look after us and our security and an Associate Research Fellow at the Pears Institute for the Study of Anti-Semitism, Birkbeck University of London, which has put on a number of sort of major seminars and also published, I think. Um, Here's the author of The Left's Jewish Problem, Jeremy Corbyn, Israel and Anti-Semitism. He writes regularly about anti-Semitism and extremism for newspapers and journals, both nationally and internationally. So, over I think to Dave first, and thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, there's a couple of things I need to say before I uh, really start on the meat of what we're going to talk about. The first thing is to apologise for the offensive yeah. image. I'm sorry about that. Normally I have a, a sort of opening slide first so I can explain. There are going to be some offensive images that I show you during this talk. One of the things I want to do is put it into context um, and try and explain where this kind of anti-Semitism comes from and how we should understand it and and place it in our kind of general British lives. Uh, The other thing I want to say, um, which we we just touched on, is obviously I work at CST, 
And ordinarily, that's not an issue when I do public talks about anti-Semitism and about anti-Semitism in politics. Uh, because we are in an election period at the moment, I do have to stress that CST is a charity, it's completely non-party political, and we do not endorse or oppose any party or any candidate in any election. And so um, if we do get onto the subject of anti-Semitism in political parties, I have to stress that nothing I say should be taken as any kind of indication as to how anyone should vote. Um, God forbid I should try and tell anyone how to do that. Um, and the third thing I want to say is to thank you for inviting me to speak here. This is actually the second time that I've spoken in this shul. Uh, the first time was three years ago uh, at my daughter's bar mitzvah because we had the party in the hall downstairs. Uh, and this speech, I anticipate, will have more anti-Semitism in it than that one did, but probably fewer jokes. Uh, but I'll, I'll try. Um, right now, this image. Why do I always start with this image? This is an image, that this was graffiti that was drawn on the wall of a student hall of residence in London last year. And I think it really uh, illustrates a lot of things about how anti-Semitism works. Firstly, it's really nasty. Right? If you imagine you're a teenager, you're a student, you're living away from home for the first time, and you walk out of your room on your corridor, as one young Jewish student did, and she saw this drawn effectively in her home by a stranger. It's incredibly distressing and incredibly upsetting and threatening. And of course, it's the same for everyone who lives on that corridor, whether they're Jewish or not, and for everyone who lives in that hall of residence, because the vast majority of people do not want to share their home with someone who would write that on a wall. And of course, what happens is a photograph gets taken, it gets circulated around on social media, maybe it reaches the Jewish Chronicle, uh, there might be articles about it, there may be parents of student-aged children Worrying, is this what our children have to put up with at university? My organisation, CST, will get phone calls from similar Jewish organisations in overseas, in the United States, in Israel, in France, elsewhere. Is this what life's like for Jewish students? And yet, this is all the work of one person. Right? And what this tells us, one person can do an awful lot of damage to how whole communities feel, whether that's the Jewish community, the wider student community, or anyone else. Um, and that's, when we talk about anti-Semitism in this country, we always have to try and put it into that context of, what does it actually tell us about how, what most people think about Jews? Well, how much anti-Semitism is there really? Well, fortunately, uh, we have a server which can tell us. I'm gonna be standing here, so I'm gonna be clicking the computer to change this thing. So a couple of years ago, uh, CST, working with the Institute for Jewish Policy Research, um, did the biggest ever survey we've ever done of attitudes towards Jewish people in this country and towards Israel. And we found out some really interesting things that will help us put this kind of thing in context. And the first thing we found, which actually made us really happy, is that this is really not a very anti-Semitic country at all. When we talk about just general attitudes across the general population in this country, if you look at this line here, the red here, 2.4%, those are the people who, when you ask them how favourable or unfavourable do you feel about Jewish people, they are very happy to say, I feel very unfavourable, I really don't like Jews. 
that they know that they don't like Jews, and those are two different things, and they're willing to tell some opinion pollster who phones them up out of the blue that they really don't like Jews. So that's what we might call our hardcore anti-Semites. And another 10% of the pinkish ones who kind of, if you scratch beneath the surface a little, you'll find the anti-Semitism there. The blue bit, two-thirds of people say they like Jews. And actually what we found in this survey is that most people, or an awful lot of people in this country, have no opinion either way. They never really think about Jewish people. They don't know any Jewish people. They don't know what the word anti-Semitism means. This is all just completely foreign to them. This compares very, very well with every other country, certainly in the West, including North America. And if you look, there's a lot more anti-Muslim prejudice than there is anti-Semitism. Christians, most popular, not really surprised. Now, this is a very blunt way to find out if someone's anti-Semitic or not, and we're asking them how you feel, right? The word feel in the question, I think, is really important. But anti-Semitism, as we know, isn't always that direct, right? It's sometimes it's coded language, it's conspiracy theories, it's ideas and stereotypes that people believe that they think about Jewish people, especially if they don't know any Jewish people. So we asked about those as well. And this is the list of the questions we asked about. In this order? Uh, the order varied depending on, there were about 5,000 people, sorry, who asked the question? I couldn't see. Yes, there were about 5,000 people in the survey, and the order changes for each one, it's kind of randomised. It was done, the polling was done by the JPR, got a lot of experience with that, working with Ipsos Mori, I mean, it was very much uh, sort of gold standard polling methodology. So the first two, the two questions at the top, are positive things. We wanted to give people the chance to agree with uh, nice things about Jews. Um, and you see the most popular, the red here is where people agreed. The most popular opinions, attitudes, were positive ones. But the negative ones here, if you can read them, can everyone read those? Yeah. No? Okay. We've got more than that 2.4% agreeing with some of these, right? You know, 10, 12%, something like that, it goes up, right? Um, and these are ideas that people have picked up from somewhere, they've heard it from someone, family, friends, they've read it, they've seen it on the internet, they don't really know, maybe they don't really know many Jewish people, and they believe it. Because a lot of people believe stereotypes without really thinking about them. Now, if you add up all of these questions here, it's not the same people answering yes to each one. So how many people in our survey answered yes to at least one of these questions? Let's put it another way. How many people in this country believe at least one anti-Semitic view, one negative thing about Jews? And the answer is 30%. Right? Now, that does not mean 30% of this country is anti-Semitic. We saw before, only 2.5%, and if if you really need, or maybe 10%, We've got anti-Jewish sentiment. But people believe stuff, they believe stereotypes. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we probably have a whole load of stereotypes about other people who we don't really know that well. And they filter through. But of course, if you're at a party, at work, in a shop, online, and you see someone saying, oh, Jews are too rich, they only care about themselves, you don't know at that point if that is one of this 30% who's just a bit ignorant and doesn't really understand what they're saying, or if it's one of the 2.5% who really means it. 
And that's the difficulty we have with understanding anti-Semitism and the difference between what people think about Jews and what they feel about Jews. And it's possible that people believe anti-Semitic stuff, believe things that we would all maybe recognise as anti-Semitic stereotypes without feeling any actual hostility. Um, another thing that we did, just to add to a bit of... Um, just a bit of context to this again. The same survey, we asked people what they thought of Israel. And we asked people a whole load of uh, negative views about Israel. When I say negative, I mean really negative. Do you think Israel should exist? Do you think it should be boycotted? Do you think it's an apartheid state? Is it committing genocide? Really, not just ordinary criticisms of Israeli policy, but really hardcore anti-Israel beliefs. And then we match the two up, right? Is there a correlation? Do they go together or not? And what we found is, yes, they do. Right? This is the 30% of the population who have at least one anti-Semitic viewpoint. And the blue lines I'm going to show you next are uh, sort of grouped by how anti-Israel someone is. And if you look at the one here on zero, people who have no anti-Israel attitudes at all are half as likely as the population as a whole to have one anti-Jewish anti viewpoint, one anti-Semitic viewpoint. People who believe a lot of anti-Israel stuff, really across the board, hardcore, they really, really dislike Israel, 74% have at least one anti-Semitic viewpoint. Now, there's two things I'll say about this. One of them is that 26% of them didn't at all, right? It's perfectly possible to be really extremely hostile to Israel and not at all, uh, not believe any negative things about Jews. But it, they're much more likely to go together. Now, which one comes first, we don't know, but it's part of the context for the anti-Semitism that we see. Now, okay, this is where we go on to the offensive pictures next, just to warn you. How does this all this influence what goes on on the ground, right? Day-to-day -day stuff. And what we've seen in the last few years is political extremism and political language is having more and more of an impact on how anti-Semitism actually works in this country. Um, so this is graffiti from last year from uh, somewhere in Hertfordshire. Adolf Hitler was right, pretty nasty stuff. Would generally be recognised by everybody as anti-Semitic, obviously from a far-right viewpoint. Doesn't need much explaining. But this, this is uh, it's not that easy to read. It says Jews kill children, right? Now this was daubed on a path in Leicester in May last year, right? Now, what was going on in the world in May last year? There was a flare-up in violence on the border between Israel and Gaza. Lots of Palestinians, including some Palestinian children, were killed. It was all in the news. It was on social media, especially if you are active in pro-Palestinian campaigning groups and on your Facebook groups and so on. It was all there. And this was the response of someone in Leicester. And I stress again, someone. Right? Each of these pieces of graffiti only needs one person to do it. What it's an indicator of is anti-Semitism reacts to events. Events happen, anti-Semites get excited, they go out and do stuff like this. It also means more people are willing to report it because people are maybe more worried about it. 
Um, and we get these little kind of spikes, and the language will reflect what's going on. And of course, for anyone who knows the history of the blood libel and the history of anti-Semitism, the reference to Jews killing children has another meaning. Um, but sometimes... So this is, sorry, this is like very extreme. This is very extremist stuff. But what we see, and especially on social media, is that this kind of attitude gets into mainstream debate. And the reason it gets into mainstream debate is because on social media, mainstream politicians, mainstream commentators, quite possibly a lot of us, are active in the same space as people who have these kind of attitudes. Whereas we don't go and daub rival stuff on people's fences, on social media, on the internet, it's all in the same place. I'm going, you, I'm going to give you three examples, each one from a different political uh, position or, or context. Right? This is an anti-Semitic tweet by a Corbyn supporter right? about how nasty Jewish people can be, anyone know about final solution, etc. But talking about uh, accusations of anti-Semitism aimed at Corbyn. Right? Really nasty stuff. This one... Um, is from a far-right account <laughs> blaming Brexit on Jewish politicians trying to block Brexit. Uh, and if any of you didn't know Dominic Greaves, no, right? uh, well, I've got no idea if that's true or not. What I do know is anti-Semites will find Jewish ancestry where it really doesn't exist if, if to give them the opportunity to blame anything on Jews. Right? Um, but this last one is uh, someone attacking Luciana Berger in really despicable terms after she, after she left the Labour Party. Right? Now, my point about this, these are all on Twitter. right? They're all in the same space. You can find this stuff as easily as you can find what Jeremy Corbyn or Boris Johnson or Joe Swinson have said today or what's happening with your favourite football or cricket team or whatever. It's all in the same space. And that's what makes it different from the stuff that gets painted on fences. Um, and the other thing that's happening, because it's all in the same space, it all gets mixed up. So this idea that there's, there's, there's far-right anti-Semitism and there's, there's uh, you know, sort of Israel-related or far-left anti-Semitism and, and there's a sort of Islamist anti-Semitism... <laughs> Those separations, those barriers aren't really there anymore. And I'm going to give you a couple of examples now. Um, this is uh, some hate mail that was sent to a Jewish journalist last year. All these examples are from the last year or two. Now, if you read the first two lines, again, really nasty stuff. You read the second line, the reference to the ovens, well, it's a Holocaust reference. So you get that far and you think, well, this is a Nazi. This is someone from a far-right background. And then you read the next two lines, and you look at the last line with the reference to Palestinian babies. Ooh, maybe it's someone who really hates Israel. Maybe it's from a far-left background. Or maybe it's from someone who doesn't have any fixed political viewpoint, but just knows if you want to really offend and abuse Jewish people, this is the sort of language you use, and you can just make any kind of reference you want. Um, and this tweet, another one, Starts off with some classic kind of conspiracy theory, Zionist capitalism runs the BBC. Uh, you've got the Union Jacks, so you think, okay, maybe again, right wing nationalist. 
And then at the end it says JC for PM, Jeremy Corbyn. Well, who knows exactly where this person would place themselves on the political spectrum. But again, stuff, the language all gets mixed up and the, and the viewpoints and the attitudes all get mixed up. Um, and so to, to dig down into this a little bit deeper, I'm now going to look specifically at uh, what goes on online, what goes on on the internet. Right? This is uh, a, a, a grouping of, of words extracted from uh, anti-Semitic incidents reported to CST last year that took place on uh, social media, right, on the internet. And I'm going to draw out three or four different groups of words to illustrate what I mean. First one is what you might call the far-right language, right, Holocaust, Nazi, Hitler, so on. Again, most people would recognise this as the language of anti-Semitism. Um, but this group, more related to Israel-Palestine, like Gaza, Israel, Zionist, they're not in themselves anti-Semitic words, but they get used in an anti-Semitic way. Just to be clear, uh, at CST, we very much distinguish between anti-Israel, criticism of Israel, pro-Palestinian campaigning and so on, and when language related to Israel is used in an anti-Semitic way to threaten or abuse Jewish people or alongside anti-Semitic language. Now the next group of words is again related to the Labour Party and that just reflects what's going on, what went on last year and again anti-Semitism changes to reflect what's going on in the world and what's going on in politics and a year from now those words might, not, might no longer appear in any of this if things change. The last group of words I want to show you in some ways is the most important, right? And it's the words that have no particular political uh, affiliation and aren't really at all related to Jews, right? And it's just the words of just anger and hatred, right? Kill, hate, kick. It's just horrible, violent, angry language. And what we're seeing increasingly is that this kind of anger... Uh, it drives all types of hate crime. I did a talk yesterday um, at uh, Goldsmiths University with a uh, Palestinian woman called Imam Abu uh, Atta, who runs an organization called Talman, which uh, basically monitors anti-Muslim hate crime. They do for Muslim communities similar to what CSD does for the Jewish community. And we worked together very closely, actually. We did this joint lecture for a criminology class because the whole point is... Hate crime, the underlying emotions behind hate crime are very, very similar, whatever type of hate crime you're talking about. And it's this kind of anger and this kind of uh, a language of hate and a language of fear, I think, and of division. And from that, you get hatred of, of the other and of difference of whatever that group is. And it plays out in, across all different types of prejudice. Um, But one thing that I think is, is quite specific to anti-Semitism is uh, conspiracy theories. Right? And when we, when, we, when we think of how anti-Semitism is sort of different from other types of racism, it's, not, it's, it's that Jews are often portrayed as very powerful. And uh, the whole conspiracy theory about Jews controlling media and politicians and so on. And again, the internet 
is to a large extent the driver of this. Conspiracy theories are much more popular now than they used to be. There are mainstream political leaders in this country and many other countries overseas, which you think of a few, who are themselves conspiracy theorists. Um, and of course that gives encouragement to others. Uh, and this is, I think, a classic piece of graffiti um, from London last year. It's one of dozens by the same person that we've found in, in kind of West London that we've never managed to find out who it is, but they keep coming back and doing this. And you can deconstruct it, right? At the top, there's, there's the word Goyim, right? And this is the thing to remember about anti-Semites, is that they are absolutely obsessed with Jews and Judaism and everything Jewish, and they think they know how to use the language and the technical language. So they think they're talking in some kind of special code. Holohoax, as in the Holocaust didn't happen, right? Six million lies, but the dollar sign. And at the bottom, the key to all knowledge, Google, right? And this is it. The internet is where all of this happens now. Again, I would not assume this person considers themselves far right just because they deny the Holocaust. Holocaust denial has increasingly just become another conspiracy theory and it sits alongside all other kinds of quite crazy stuff. Um, and the language, I'm going to show you three examples now of exactly the same conspiracy theory but using three different types of language. And it's an example of how we sometimes have trouble explaining to people what anti-Semitism is. Um, this is the first one from a park in North London a few years ago. It's a good little ball, isn't it? Yeah, a very badly drawn swastika. That is a theme, I have to say. <laughs> um, but again, Jews did 9-11, right? It's a conspiracy theory that Jews uh, were responsible for 9-11. And again, most people would recognise that as anti-Semitic because it says Jews and because it's got swastika on it, right? But this... These were posters put on bus shelters in North London earlier this year, right? Now, it doesn't say, it's exactly the same conspiracy theory, exactly the same way of thinking, but it doesn't say Jews, it says Israel. There's no swastika, there's a Star of David. So there may well be some people look at that and think, well, it's a bit wacky, but that's not about Jews. But it's exactly the same theory, just the language has changed slightly. Same way of thinking. And here's the third one. Again, very poorly written, couldn't fit it in, so scribbled out. Yeah, ISIS are the pawns of Zionism. But bear in mind, most people in this country have not got a clue what the word Zionism means. You know, ISIS are the pawns of Zionism. What does that even mean? Now, as far as I'm concerned, it's exactly the same conspiracy theory. What it's saying is that terrorism that happens in the West, whether it's in the United States or in Europe, it's not really done by ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Behind it are the Jews in one form or another, whatever word we use to describe Jews. But it gets increasingly difficult to um, get immediate recognition and acceptance of that anti-Semitism when the language becomes more and more coded. Um, and the last example, the last set of examples I'm going to, this is what I'm going to finish on really. I talked about how this is, this is getting into mainstream politics and mainstream discourse. Um, and I'm going to give you an example of what I mean, this is what I'm going to finish, right? 
This is a really long-standing traditional anti-Semitic motif of the Jew as the puppeteer controlling politicians. This is a uh, a Nazi uh, magazine cover, I think, from the 1940s, and the, the Jewish puppeteer is controlling uh, Roosevelt, uh, Churchill, and Stalin. Roosevelt could walk them. Roosevelt could walk. Well, he's got a stick. Okay. Right? Standard stuff. Obviously anti-Semitic, look at the caricature, but it's the puppeteer, it's the Jews are the ones pulling the strings behind the scenes. Right? It's a very common anti-Semitic motive. Here is a tweet from the Leave EU official Twitter uh, channel last year, October last year. Does anyone know who this is? It's hot. It's George Soros. Right, George Soros is a Jewish-Hungarian billionaire philanthropist. Right, he made oodles of money uh, betting against the Bank of England on uh, was it Black Wednesday, I think, in 1992. And he spends his enormous amounts of money funding liberal causes and liberal organisations in Europe and in the United States. He is the Benoit of the uh, radical right-wing government in Hungary, but also in Poland and in Russia and elsewhere. He has become a very common motif in the language of Donald Trump and in other kind of uh, right-wing populist conspiracy theories that he is the one behind mass immigration to Europe, behind mass migration into the United States, that he's trying to destroy nations, he's trying to destroy national borders. Right? But he's Jewish, and he's a Jewish financier. And you've got him pulling the strings of Tony Blair. Same motif, right? The Jew pulling, controlling the politician through the puppet strings from a right-wing um, campaign, but a mainstream right-wing campaign. And this is my last image. This is a cartoon from Guardian uh, from 2012. And here you have Netanyahu, and he's got uh, Tony Blair again, and William Hague as his puppets. Um, and they're not with strings, they're finger puppets, hand puppets, but it's the same motive. Right? Here's the Israeli leader, not the Jewish philanthropist, but controlling Western politicians as his puppets. And again, it's as mainstream as you get. It's a fairly standard cartoonist motif. I mean, how many times have we seen Putin as the chap pulling the strings for various Brexiters or right-wingers recently? So it's interesting because there was a huge fuss about, well, uh, for the Guardian one in particular, there was a huge fuss, lost complaints, and the Guardian's reader's editor uh, looked at it in great depth, and he came to the view which I agree with, which is motifs can have different meanings in different contexts. And because the conspiracy motif is so central to anti-Semitism, the idea of Jews controlling politicians is such a key part of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It therefore, it inevitably has that meaning when you're talking about or, or presenting the idea of a powerful Jew controlling the politician. Because the message to the readers is, or to the viewers, say the Leave.eu tweet is, you might think Tony Blair is telling you what he thinks. You might think he is giving you an honest opinion, but actually he's not. 
He's not. He's he's having his strings pulled by by this guy George Soros, who you've never heard of, who meanwhile uses his money to control and manipulate politicians. And that's anti-Semitic mode too. Now I agree. It gets used in other contexts as well. But I'm sure we can think of racial stereotypes of all different minorities that if they're used in other contexts, they're relatively harmless. If you use them, target them at the minority for whom they are a racist stereotype, it brings that extra meaning. I think I'm going to hand over to Keith. I know there's plenty of time for more questions at the end. I think. Yeah. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Um, so... First of all, um, Dave is a lot more class than me, so he hasn't plugged his book. I have a lot less class, so I'm going to plug not one but two books that I will be talking about in here. But what I'm talking about here is not just a pricey, so don't worry about that. And I do have a few copies to sell. That's it. Plug over. Um, Dave and I talked this morning uh, about what, how we're going to cooperate uh, this evening. And he, and he said he was going to talk about conspiracy theories and anti-Semitism uh, as part of what he was talking about. And a question uh, popped into my head at that point, which is, could you have a non-conspiratorial form of anti-Semitism? Could you have a form of anti-Semitism that didn't involve conspiracy theories about Jews? And that tied in with a question that I've long been thinking about, and I've done some writing about, although not in the book. Um, is anti-Semitism about, about Jews at all? Because you often see the argument that anti-Semitism is actually about anti-Semites. It's about fantasies, whether conspiratorial or otherwise, that treat Jews as something that they are not, that they are fundamentally not, or they grossly exaggerate or blow out of all proportion some particular small aspects of, of who Jews are and what they're like. So I've been thinking about that a lot, and I've been thinking that it's actually quite a useful exercise to do a kind of a thought experiment of what a non-conspiratorial anti-Semitism would look like. And I think there are two ways you could do it. The first way would be to have a kind of pure hate. You hate Jews because you hate Jews. I don't want to justify it. I'm just going to hate Jews. I'm not going to say why. I'm going to do everything I can to cause them pain and distress. Stum. Well, they probably wouldn't say stum. Um, so that's one sort, the kind of senseless hatred. The other kind of anti-Semitism, and this is a lot more difficult, would be hatred of Jews based on actual real things that Jews actually did, which would probably not work very well because most things that what Jews do are, some are annoying or a bit infuriating, but probably not enough to generate the sort of hatred that we associate with anti-Semitism. So a non-conspiratorial anti-Semitism, an anti-Semitism that was about Jews in some way, would be very difficult, although not impossible. And in fact, it, history shows that it's often been difficult, that hatred has always needed to be justified in some way. And often that process of justification has gone way beyond any kind of reality of who Jews are. So... 
the most obvious example is the medieval blood libel, the lie that Jews created in, in England um, in the 12th century, uh, but with roots going back earlier, the lie that Jews kill Christian children um, in order for their blood that they use in making matzah and pesah. Right? So that shows that even nearly a thousand years ago, hatred of Jews in some ways was difficult, that it worked a lot better if you had something that you could really grasp on, that you could really um, seize on as a justification. But all that said, hating Jews, anti-Semitism becomes in some ways much more difficult in the modern world, in, the, in modernity. Basically, the time in, in Western countries since 17th, 18th centuries and the radical transformations that happened within them. And this is part of a wider set of transformations which I talk about in my book, Denial. What I argue in the book is that in the modern world, something that I call the gap has opened up. And this is a gap between what we as human beings desire and what we as human beings can justify. One of the things that happens in the modern world is the dominance, the growing dominance of a particular kind of official discourse. Governments are supposed to be non-corrupt, if not necessarily democratic, then at least fair-minded or representative to a degree. Hatred is supposed to be put within strict limits. We are supposed to be civilized, rational creatures. Now that's the official discourse, but human beings at the same time still wanted to do things that they had always done. Genocide is something that has been perpetrated in various forms or others for thousands of years. It's nothing particularly new. And so there was no reason to think that human beings wouldn't at some particular times and spaces want to perpetrate genocide in modernity. But it became very difficult to justify it because that is not what modern civilized people should do. That's the gap that I talk about. And to close that gap, you get increasingly the phenomena of denial and what I call denialism. It's a very striking fact that since the late 19th century, there have been multiple genocides, and every single one of them has been denied at the time and subsequently. It's very difficult to pick out, to find, including in the Nazi Holocaust, open celebrations of genocide. And that's the case also for other forms of denial. Denial arises when it's impossible to find a language of justification for something you want to do. That's why we have denial of climate change, because a good person should not want bad things to happen and should not help for it and should not help that process along. So the only way to justify inaction on climate change is to deny that it's happening at all, that it's, that it's man-made. Now, I would also argue that in the post-war period, that gap, the need for denial, became even wider. And one of the reasons for that was the Nazis. By creating a regime that was so absolutely despicable, and in particular created the Holocaust, a genocide 
unlike any other in its mechanized, systematic nature. And they created, in a way, in the post-war period, they became the gold standard, if you like, of evil. Now, that becomes a problem if you're a neo-Nazi, but it also becomes a problem if you want to perpetrate what might might call softer forms of anti-Semitism. Um, so that leads me to argue, and I say this in my book, the problem, the main problem of anti-Semitism today, and I know it's counterintuitive, is the consensus that anti-Semitism is a bad thing. So, and that means that one of the main problems with anti-Semitism today is denial. You even see this on far-right hate sites that, don't that are very reluctant to use the word racist. They much prefer the word racialist or maybe something like race realist. Let's not forget that the word anti-Semitism was actually created by an anti-Semite, a guy called Wilhelm Marr in the last quarter of the 19th century. Who, wanted, uh, who created the League of German Anti-Semites. Something like that is inconceivable now. People don't fly the banner of anti-Semites, but they still may hate Jews, which creates a problem. So that leads to a whole load of pathological ways in which anti-Semitism is both justified and denied at the same time. Some of that is things like Holocaust denial. Holocaust denial in my view, is actually a coded justification of genocide. Because if Jews were capable of pulling off a hoax of that magnitude, then the only conclusion you could say is that these people are so dangerous that genocide against them would be justifiable. So that's one form. That's, that's the sort of more extreme form of denialism. But more generally, in online discourse, when you see on social media, I'm sure Dave has seen this more times than he can count, I'm not anti-Semitic, but, and the main, uh, the, even by people who have long track records of fairly overt Jew hatred, will deny it, almost as a reflex thing. So denial and denialism are central to the way that anti-Semitism works today. But I want to talk, and this is what I talk about in my most recent book, about another way that anti-Semitism gets round the kind of restrictions on what can be freely spoken of today, and that is what I call selectivity. Now, Dave started his talk, his talk with his, on, on his uh, presentation with a slide saying, all Jews must die. Now, all Jews must die is a pretty clear and unequivocal statement. It's also what, if the Pittsburgh shooting a year ago, that's what the shooter said when he burst into the synagogue. Well, he said, all Jews must die. Now, that's what I call consensus anti-Semitism. I call it consensus anti-Semitism, A, because it assumes that all Jews are more or less the same, so that there is a consensus amongst Jews, if you like. But it's also consensus anti-Semitism because there's a consensus amongst Jews that it is anti-Semitism. But I would argue that some of the main problems we're having about anti-Semitism today are to do with a different kind of anti-Semitism that I call selective anti-Semitism. Now, selective anti-Semitism is a mixture of love and hate. It selects Jews for approval and for love, and Jews for disapproval and for hatred. And this 
is, I'm not necessarily going to say this is the dominant form of anti-Semitism, but I think on certain uh, parts of the political spectrum, it is becoming almost normative, certainly in some left-wing circles. Now, I don't want to get too, in our discussions, to get too Corbyn-focused, but I think it's very clear. Um, I'll leave on to one side the question of whether Jeremy Corbyn is an anti-Semite, but I think he's perfectly clear is that he has a deep and abiding long-term relationship with a particular sort of Jew and a love of a particular kind of Jewish tradition. That is the tradition of the Cable Street, the tradition of the Bund, the tradition of secular, anti-Zionist certainly after the war, maybe, maybe a bit Zionist before the war. So Jeremy Corbyn, I would say, is, is in some respects a phylocemite. And that is normative, I think, in sections, of, uh, in sections of the left. A comparison with what Jews were and which some Jews still are compared to the horrible reality that, that most Jews, the majority of Jews in this country today are middle class and in some shape or form are Zionists to a degree. So it's a mixture of love and hate. And what that means is that anti, whether anti-Semitism is about Jews or not, it's certainly becoming about Jews. Because one of the things that anti-Semitism today does, not consensus anti-Semitism, all Jews must die, we're agreed on that. But the rest of it, a lot of the rest of it, selective anti-Semitism causes immense conflict between Jews. Because it's not just on the left, it's also on the right. Certainly uh, the American Christian right have no love and often have a great deal of hate for liberally minded and certainly left-wing Jews, but they have a lot of love for right-wing orthodox um, uh, revisionist, not revisionist Zionist, right-wing Zionist Jews. So most of us at some time become one of the selected ones, the kind of Jews that, that, a lot, that, that people like. But also most Jews at some time become one of the rejected ones, the bad Jews, as opposed to the good Jews. And we're often good and bad Jews simultaneously. And that's why this whole thing not just leads to conflict amongst Jews, but also confuses us and unmoors us and makes us tremendously insecure. Which is why, despite the figures that Dave Rich quoted above, that levels of general levels of anti-Semitism are fairly low in this country, the, whatever you can say about what's happened in anti-Semitism in the Labour Party in the last few years, it has caused an immense amount of stress, an immense uh, amount of hurt. And that includes, by the way, Jews who support Corbyn. It's a different kind of stress. It's not anti-Semitism, but it is still stress. It turns Jew against Jew. But I want to end um, by going back to the bigger picture, which is this selectivity isn't just something about Jews, that the Jews are selected to be the good and bad ones. You get this a lot, um, also with Muslims and with other minorities. Now, it was always the case that there would always be the odd exception, but I'm not talking about the odd exception here. <coughs> Particular groups of minorities who were seen as the good ones. You certainly get that. So I I've, I've have quite a lot of friends in the Muslim community who are liberally minded, and if you talk to a liberally minded Muslim who has some kind of public profile, they all have the same experience of absolutely being bombarded with love 
by people who are desperate for good Muslims and also bombarded with hate, either from other Muslims or sometimes from the left. I'm sure if I had those contacts, that if I had contacts with some Islamic fundamentalist groups in this country, they would also tell you what it's like to be bombarded with love from sections of the left. And if you're an ex-Muslim, if you anyone heard of Ayan Hirsi Ali, who's a quite famous um, Somali woman now living in, in uh, America, who is a very prominent ex-Muslim, you get bombarded with love from Islamophobes because ultimately what's the best kind of Muslim there is? An ex-Muslim. <laughs> and I think this is a real problem, this selective love and hate. One of the things it's doing in some ways is reviving racism because it provides a way of circumnavigating this consensus that racism is a bad thing. It means that more of us are able to be racist some of the time, including Jews, than was ever before. It's a very powerful form of denial. It's a very powerful way of justifying the unjustifiable. And the only way around that, the only way to deal with that, is to refuse to play along, to refuse to be the good Jew for anyone, just as we want, might want to refuse to be the bad Jew as well. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.